A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 36. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 12, Philae, Part 3. The medieval history of Philae is almost a blank. The Arabs, having invaded Egypt towards the middle of the seventh century, were long in the land before they began to cultivate literature, and for more than three hundred years history is silent. It is not till the tenth century that we once again catch a fleeting glimpse of Philae. The frontier is now removed to the head of the cataract. The holy island has ceased to be Christian, ceased to be Nubian, contains a mosque and garrison, and is the last fortified outpost of the Muslims. It still retains, and apparently continues to retain for some centuries longer, its ancient Egyptian name. That is to say, P becoming as usual converted into B, the Pilak of the hieroglyphic inscriptions becomes in Arabic Belak, which is much more like the original than the Philae of the Greeks. The native Christians, meanwhile, would seem to have relapsed into a state of semi-barbarism. They make perpetual inroads upon the Arab frontier, and suffer perpetual defeat. Battles are fought, tribute is exacted, treaties are made and broken. Towards the close of the thirteenth century, their king being slain and their churches plundered, they lose one-fourth of their territory, including all that part which borders upon Upper Aswan. Those who remain Christians are also condemned to pay an annual capitation tax, in addition to the usual tribute of dates, cotton, slaves, and camels. After this we may conclude that they accepted Islamism from the Arabs, as they had accepted Osiris from the Egyptians and Christ from the Romans. As Christians, at all events, we hear of them no more, for Christianity in Nubia perished root and branch, and not a copt, it is said, may now be found above the frontier. Philae was still inhabited in A.D. 1799, when a detachment of Desaix's army under General Belliard took possession of the island, and left an inscription on the soffit of the doorway of the great pylon to commemorate the passage of the cataract. Denon, describing the scene with his usual vivacity, relates how the natives first defied and then fled from the French, flinging themselves into the river, drowning such of their children as were too young to swim, and escaping into the desert. They appear at this time to have been mere savages, the women ugly and sullen, the men naked, agile, quarrelsome, and armed not only with swords and spears, but with matchlock guns which they used to keep up a brisk and well-directed fire. Their abandonment of the island probably dates from this time, for when Burckhardt went up in A.D. 1813, he found it, as we found it to this day, deserted and solitary. One poor old man, if indeed he still lives, is now the one inhabitant of Philae, and I suspect he only crosses over from Biga in the tourist season. He calls himself, with or without authority, the guardian of the island, sleeps in a nest of rags and straw in a sheltered corner behind the great temple, and is so wonderfully wizened and bent and knotted up that nothing of him seems quite alive except his eyes. We gave him fifty copper paras for a parting present when on our way back to Egypt, and he was so oppressed by the consciousness of wealth that he immediately buried his treasure and implored us to tell no one what we had given him. 
With the French siege and the flight of the native population closes the last chapter of the local history of Philae. The holy island has done henceforth with wars of creeds or kings. It disappears from the domain of history and enters the domain of science. To have contributed to the discovery of the hieroglyphic alphabet is a high distinction, and in no sketch of Philae, however slight, should the obelisk that furnished Champollion with the name of Cleopatra be allowed to pass unnoticed. This monument, second only to the Rosetta Stone in point of philological interest, was carried off by Mr. W. Banks, the discoverer of the first tablet of Abydos, and is now in Dorsetshire. Its empty socket and its fellow obelisk, mutilated and solitary, remain in situ at the southern extremity of the island. And now, for we have lingered over long in the portico, it is time we glanced at the interior of the temple. So we go in at the central door, beyond which open some nine or ten halls and side chambers leading, as usual, to the sanctuary. Here all is dark, earthy, oppressive. In rooms unlighted by the faintest gleam from without, we find smoke-blackened walls covered with elaborate bas-reliefs. Mysterious passages, pitch-dark, thread the thickness of the walls and communicate by means of trap-like openings with vaults below. In the sanctuary lies an overthrown altar, while in the corner behind it stands the very niche in which Strabo must have seen that poor sacred hawk of Ethiopia which he describes as sick and nearly dead. But in this temple, dedicated not only to Isis, but to the memory of Osiris and the worship of Horus their son, there is one chamber which we may be quite sure was shown neither to Strabo nor Diodorus, nor to any stranger of alien faith, be his repute or station what it might, a chamber holy above all others, holier even than the sanctuary, the chamber sacred to Osiris. We, however, unrestricted, unforbidden, are free to go where we list, and our books tell us that this mysterious chamber is somewhere overhead. So emerging once again into the daylight, we go up a well-worn staircase leading out upon the roof. This roof is an intricate, up-and-down place, and the room is not easy to find. It lies at the bottom of a little flight of stairs, a small stone cell some twelve feet square, lighted only from the doorway. The walls are covered with sculptures representing the shrines, the mummification, and the resurrection of Osiris. These shrines, containing each some part of his body, are variously fashioned. His head, for instance, rests on a nylometer. His arm, surmounted by a head, is sculptured on a stela, in shape resembling a high-shouldered boulder, surmounted by one of the head-dresses peculiar to the god, his legs and feet lie full length in a pylon-shaped mausoleum. Upon another shrine stands the meter-shaped crown which he wears as judge of the lower world. Isis and Nephthys keep guard over each shrine. In a lower frieze we see the mummy of the god laid upon a bier, with the four so-called canopic jars ranged underneath. A little farther on he lies in state, surrounded by lotus buds on tall stems, figurative of growth or returning life. Finally he is depicted lying on a couch, his limbs reunited, his head, left hand, and left foot upraised, as in the act of returning to consciousness. Nephthys, in the guise of a winged genius, fans him with the breath of life. 
Isis, with outstretched arms, stands at his feet and seems to be calling him back to her embraces. The scene represents, in fact, that supreme moment when Isis pours forth her passionate invocations, and Osiris is resuscitated by virtue of the songs of the Divine Sisters. Ill-modeled and ill-cut as they are, there is a clownish naturalness about these little sculptures which lifts them above the conventional dead level of ordinary Ptolemaic work. The figures tell their tale intelligibly. Osiris seems really struggling to rise, and the action of Isis expresses clearly enough the intention of the artist. Although a few heads have been mutilated and the surface of the stone is somewhat degraded, the subjects are by no means in a bad state of preservation. In the accompanying sketches, nothing has been done to improve the defective drawing or repair the broken outlines of the originals. Osiris in one has lost his foot, and in another his face. The hands of Isis are as shapeless as those of a brand doll, and the naivete of the treatment verges throughout upon caricature. But the interest attaching to them is altogether apart from the way in which they are executed. And now, returning to the roof, it is pleasant to breathe the fresher air that comes with sunset, to see the island in shape like an ancient Egyptian shield, lying mapped out beneath one's feet. From here we look back upon the way we have come, and forward to the way we are going. Northward lies the cataract, a network of islets with flashes of river between. Southward the broad current comes on in one smooth glossy sheet, unbroken by a single rapid. How eagerly we turn our eyes that way, for yonder lie Abu Simbel and all the mysterious lands beyond the cataracts. But we cannot see far, for the river curves away grandly to the right, and vanishes behind a range of granite hills. A similar chain hems in the opposite bank, while high above the palm groves fringing the edge of the shore stand two ruined convents on two rocky prominences, like a couple of castles on the Rhine. On the east bank opposite, a few mud houses and a group of superb carob trees mark the site of a village the greater part of which lies hidden among palms. Behind this village opens a vast sand alley, like an arm of the sea from which the waters have retreated. The old channel along which we rode the other day went ploughing that way straight across from Philae. Last of all, forming the western side of this fourfold view, we have the island of Biga, rugged, mountainous, and divided by Philae by so narrow a channel that every sound from the native village on the opposite steep is as audible as though it came from the courtyard at our feet. That village is built in and about the ruins of a tiny Ptolemaic temple, of which only a screen and doorway and part of a small propylon remain. We can see a woman pounding coffee on the threshold of one of the huts, and some children scrambling about the rocks in pursuit of a wandering turkey. Catching sight of us up here on the roof of the temple, they come whooping and scampering down to the waterside, and with shrill cries importune us for bakshish. Unless the stream is wider than it looks, one might almost pitch a piastra into their outstretched hands. Mr. Hay, it is said, discovered a secret passage of solid masonry tunneled under the river from island to island. The entrance on this side was from a shaft in the temple of Isis. We are not told how far Mr. Hay was able to penetrate in the direction of Biga, but the passage would lead up, most probably, to the little temple opposite. 
Perhaps the most entirely curious and unaccustomed features in all this scene are the mountains. They are like none that any of us have seen in our diverse wanderings. Other mountains are homogeneous, and thrust themselves up from below in masses suggestive of primitive disruption and upheaval. These seem to lie upon the surface foundationless, rock loosely piled on rock, boulder on boulder, like stupendous carns, the work of demigods and giants. Here and there, on shelf or summit, a huge rounded mass, many tons in weight, hangs poised capriciously. Most of these blocks, I am persuaded, would log if put to the test. But for a specimen stone, commend me to yonder amazing monolith down by the water's edge opposite, near the carob trees and the ferry. Though but a single block of orange-red granite, it looks like three, and the Arabs, seeing it in some fancied resemblance to an armchair, call it Pharaoh's throne. Rounded and polished by primeval floods, and emblazoned with royal cartouches of extraordinary size, it seems to have attracted the attention of pilgrims of all ages. Kings, conquerors, priests, travellers have covered it with records of victories, of religious festivals, of prayers and offerings, and acts of adoration. Some of these are older, by a thousand years and more, than the temples on the island opposite. Such, roundly summed up, are the fourfold surroundings of Philae, the cataract, the river, the desert, the environing mountains. The holy island, beautiful, lifeless, a thing of the far past, with all its wealth of sculpture, painting, history, poetry, tradition, sleeps, or seems to sleep, in the midst. It is one of the world's famous landscapes, and it deserves its fame. Every sketcher sketches it, every traveller describes it, yet it is just one of those places of which the objective and subjective features are so equally balanced that it bears putting neither into words nor colours. The sketcher must perforce leave out the atmosphere of association which informs his subject, and the writer's description is at best no better than a catalogue raisonné. End of section 36